You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to The Worship Review. My name's Tyler. I'm joined by my co-host, Colin. Hello, I'm Colin. And on this concluding episode of the first series, we're going to respond to some of your feedback and answer some questions that have come in from listeners and sort of explain ourselves for some of the things that we've left unexplained. Uh, First of all, let's just say a big thank you to our listeners. Those of you who've provided us with feedback, it is invaluable uh, by which I mean it is very valuable, and <laughs> it uh, helps us determine what needs to change, what needs to be explained better. It helps us do an about-face if we need to, if we've yeah. made a big mistake and we want to um, admit that and correct that. And uh, it gives us hints for future directions. Yeah, for sure. So thank you so much to all of you who've provided feedback. Some some folks have been giving me feedback every week, which is really nice. I've got some too. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So on this concluding episode, we'll take a look at some of the bigger concepts that need to be explained still. We'll take a look at some of the finer grained issues that we've touched on and ask some questions about our ratings of certain songs, our judgments, whether they were consistent. So Colin, uh, to begin here, uh, one listener asked us how it is that we choose our songs. And I think we've hinted at this a couple of times, but maybe it would do well to explain it in a little bit more clarity. Sure. So the best way to find out what songs are being sung in churches is to consult Christian Copyright Licensing International, which is a private company that offers copyright licensing, and it's a way to sing songs in church and be legally protected while doing so. But for a church to participate in this, they have to send in each week the a list of the songs that they've sung. So CCLI, Christian Copyright Licensing International, keeps a record of the numbers of times that songs are being sung, and they have a kind of top 100 list. So we can go to that list, and we can find out very easily which songs are being sung in the church. What we did with this first series was to pick some of those top songs. I think we never went below the top Thirty. We were yeah, all we were songs pretty close to the top thirty. Yeah. So, and you know, these songs are useful to do on a podcast such as ours because these are songs that are often being sung in a variety of denominations, and denominations have very different approaches as to how they do kind of peer review of worship songs. Some denominations have standing committees in the denomination that is that are in charge of their hymnals and hymn books. And there's a very formal, rigid, rigorous structure for determining what is sung in that denomination. And then there are other denominations which have no structure whatsoever. And I would say many evangelical churches probably lean more towards that side of the spectrum where there might be a kind of personal, there might be a person that is in charge, like a pastor or a lay worship leader or a staff worship leader, but it's largely a a kind of informal process. And this podcast is really about 
introducing some of the ideas of critical thought and evaluation that we're doing to those sorts of people. At least that's sort of where I'm coming from when I do the podcast. Which allows us to determine which songs that are protected under copyright law are being sung. There are some songs that are now in the public public domain. domain. For example, Amazing Grace is in the public domain, but Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone by Chris Tomlin is not in the public domain. And so we have data for the second and not for the first. Um, And let's just reiterate, we're not advocating for churches, uh, for denominations to form committees to bar songs or allow songs or anything like that. In fact, it's probably better if these conversations can be had at the level of the local church and they're not banned outright from the top. But we want to facilitate those kinds of conversations, or at least we want to inspire those kinds of conversations. Let me ask you a question. We have called this podcast The Worship Review, and yet we are reviewing worship music. Why are we called The Worship Review if we only look at worship music? Because isn't worship a lot more broad than that? Worship is certainly broader than simply the music that's being sung. And so in some ways, we're tapping into a uh, cultural norm within right. Christian within evangelical Christianity that uses the term worship to mean worship music. We're not endorsing that um, that nomenclature, but rather we are adopting it uh, critically. We're admitting that worship is much broader than worship music. Um, and yet when we talk about, Uh, In Christian circles, when we talk about worship music, we're referring not to uh, pop music, not to rock music, not to even um, hymns played on the organ. We're referring to a specific genre of music uh, that is being sung in the church. So we adopt that word with that specific meaning to it. Yeah, exactly. We're sort of, again, meeting our intended audience and intended collaborators in many respects and, and our peers, we're, we're kind of meeting them where they're at. The fact is that contemporary Christian music even doesn't quite work because that can include music that's never sung in a church service. So we use the nomenclature of worship music because even if it's slightly erroneous in, in the sense that worship is much more than music, it's praying, it's reading your Bible, it's learning about theology, it's serving in the Sunday school, you know, in the morning, the kids, the kids work. I mean, obviously worship is attentiveness, it's focus, it's obedience. So by thinking about worship music, we're thinking about just a subset of worship, not worship itself. But in particular, we're thinking about this particular genre of music that's being sung in a worship service. But like the worship music review doesn't quite have the same ring to it. No, we did need something a little bit catchier than that. Yeah. So we are in a subculture and we're speaking to that subculture using its words. Uh, Colin, here's a little bit of a more difficult question. It kind of cuts to the heart of what we're doing here. Is it wrong to critique worship songs, assuming that most of them were written with benign even God glorifying motives? Yeah, so we had some folks that did not like our critique of Raise a Hallelujah, in part because this song was written in a particular context. And the story is there on the YouTube video, and it's a very moving story. There was a child who 
had cancer, I think, or some other kind of terrifying situation. And the worship band or the church, you know, got together and really prayed for this child. And sure enough, uh, things ended up working out. The child ended up making it through the situation and is, is alive to this day. So it's a really, you know, miraculous thing that happened. And the song was written as a kind of way for the people in that context to say that they were trusting in God, I think was their motivation. So in that particular context, that song makes some sense. But the problem arises when you start to take songs out of those very specific contexts. So the motivation behind a song like Raise a Hallelujah may be good, or many of the other songs. I I think we assume that every song we review has been rightly motivated. But nevertheless, the words that are in those songs are brought into the worship service in general. And we have to evaluate those songs for that context, for a general worship setting. Typically stripped of the context that it was written in. And in some cases, even with the context that they're written in, there could still be some some issues. And it may be difficult or maybe even inappropriate in some ways to offer a critique in that particular context. But when a song like that is sung in the church generally, it needs to be evaluated on its own merits. And the motivations for writing it really are of secondary importance. Even great intentions don't necessarily yield good results. Certainly we would praise, and we do praise God for this child's deliverance from bodily ill and sickness, and presumably also this child's salvation. That is wonderful, and we praise God for that. Uh, But we created this podcast to critically examine texts primarily, and we evaluate those texts not based on the context in which they emerged, not based on the motives of the individual writing them, which, as we all know about ourselves, often change, are often more complicated than a simple uh, narrative. And in order to do that, we need to evaluate strictly the text on its own merit. And um, surely motives are important, and out of respect for people's motives, we've tried on this podcast to give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, to be charitable. When there's questions or ambiguities, we say, let's— Let's just assume a charitable uh, meaning here. But if we can't give the music that we sing to God in a church a critical read-through, we risk not just exposing congregations to bad ideas, but maybe even putting dangerous words onto their lips and um, false ideas into their praise to God. And Mm -hmm. certainly God is not pleased when we say things that aren't true about him or even things that are only half true about him. And so in some ways I would say it is loving to criticize a falsehood that's being said about God or a half truth that's being said about God, because we can see that the motives are well-intentioned. We can see that they're benign and uh, good hearted and yet criticize the product of it. Uh, So if, it's okay for us to criticize a song, uh, even songs that were written with good motives. What is it that actually 
disqualifies a song or what sorts of things need to be included in songs. It can seem probably at times, and there, and I think we'll get into this when we get into specifics, there have probably been some ways that we've been inconsistent or certainly are, we haven't been as explicit as we could be about some of the things that would really sink a song. Like there have been times when a single word, like we made a big deal about the word reckless, for example, and reckless love. And that that word alone seemed to be enough for us to to say that this song shouldn't be sung. Mm-hmm. But there are some other songs that we've kind of allowed to pass through. We've given them threes or fours, which also might've had a word or two that was errant. So yeah, what is it that actually would disqualify a song? Um, what needs to be included in a song? Can Are there deficiencies that in a song that could be made up in other parts of like the liturgy that surrounds the singing of worship music? What are your thoughts? So what we've tried to do here is create a system that is forgiving toward an omission. So there are times when God is not mentioned explicitly or Christ is not mentioned explicitly, but we can readily infer that it's about God or about Christ um, as long as nothing false is said about God. And then that brings me to my next point, that if there is something said about God that— casts doubt on the Trinity, casts doubt on his sovereignty, casts doubt on his mercy, his grace, his love, these these attributes of God that are unchanging. Uh, these are big red flags, and so this immediately sends up flares for us. Uh, so elements in songs that question Christ's divinity or his humanity, which is less common, but still theoretically possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are also uh, red flags for us. Um, the word reckless was a, um, what do we call it? Reckless was a hurdle that we couldn't get over uh, because, and we don't need to rehash the entire argument, but it challenged a core idea about who God is. Yeah, his very character, his very nature. Yes, he is He is one who is sovereign, is wise, is... Purposeful. Defi- I mean, almost, not almost, he's definitionally not reckless. So to say that he is reckless is, it's or, not just misleading, it's false. Yeah, or that an attribute of his is reckless, like his love is reckless. Like that, There you go. That's that, more it casts well aspersions on the character of God. Yes, and so this, an attack on his character is unacceptable in praise to him. Um, Omission of his name is potentially a problem, but nowhere near that in terms of what it does. I like to think of it as kind of a spectrum where you have heresy on one end of the spectrum, which is unacceptable in in any way, in any part of any church service, in any Christian. Like, we should root out, we should seek to root out heresy. And then as you move along the spectrum, there, there, there are, there's error, which depending on the grievousness of the error could be a problem or not. So for example, we took some exception at parts of how deep the father's love when we talked about the father turning his face away. And both you and I talked about penal substitutionary atonement, which we both agree with. But we thought that Stuart Townend took penal substitutionary atonement a little bit too far to go into error Mm -hmm. to the point where neither you and I or I would be comfortable probably singing that song for that reason. Is that, so that's kind of for, you know, in our view, that was, that was into the kind of 
a significant error. Yeah. But there's quite there's like less significant errors too. Error as well. We'll talk about this example as well. But like name of all names, yeah. that's a we we kind of get what the author was trying to say, but. And it's an it's it's an it's a slight error in some way, right? Um, so you know, is that sufficient to, you know, is that a problem? And then on the probably at the very end of the spectrum, which could disqualify a song, but probably wouldn't, is something like just vagueness. Yes, so it's ambiguity. Not, yeah, so it's not that there's air explicit heresy or even explicit error, but there just isn't. There just isn't something there, or it's unclear what's there, and in which case. In my view, okay, that doesn't necessarily disqualify a song, but you then get into a wisdom question as a worship leader or as a worshiper, why why use that song? Yes. Why sing that song? Because there are clear songs that do not have that kind of vagueness and ambiguity. So it's it's almost like, okay, you could sing it because it doesn't have anything objectionable, but it doesn't have anything there, so why? Mm-hmm. You you mentioned the spectrum. I think it's very well put, and I'd like to put a fine point on it because you also mentioned the word heresy. Heresy would be the strongest end yes. of that spectrum. If you if you upset the Trinity of God, or if you um, malign the Godhead, heresy it's dropped. And right. we don't we don't use that word lightly, right? This has yeah. theological yeah. meanings. Councils have been summoned yes. to determine what heresy is. Christians should be very 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 careful about yeah. using that word. Which is why you mentioned the Trinity. So if you yeah. if you deny the Trinity, that's literally heresy. It's not an opinion, right? That's right. just Christian. Right. Uh, it's the heresy. opposite of orthodoxy. Yes. That is an orthodox position. <sighs> yes, beautiful word. And yes. the, the the second most uh, troubling stage to be at on this spectrum would be heterodoxy, right? Mm. Which is what I would say Townend's atonement theory is. It's not it's not orthodox, uh, but it's not heresy. Right. Yeah. We mentioned that it might have implications that point in that direction, but it's heterodox. It's just unorthodox by definition. Yeah. And then as we move lighter, we get to things like error, and yeah. then ambiguity yeah. is the kind of the least troubling thing. Yeah. But it's still to be mentioned yeah. and noticed. Yeah. And heresy, you know, or heterodoxy is tough to you. You can't really make that up in the surrounding, you know, aspects of the service. Vagueness, you could. Yes. Like you could say, when this song is saying, king of my heart, it means this. When this song is saying, whatever, something else, you know, name of all names, I don't know. You know, it really means this. But again, why do a song that you have to explain all the time? And if you don't explain it all the time, then what are you encouraging your conversation? congregation to sing like without that explanation you're just giving them a bunch of metaphors or giving them a bunch of unclear wording which kind of breaks up the unity of the congregation yeah at best you're encouraging those who would have questions not to think about those questions which why would you do that yeah good um more big questions do we have any other big questions yes colin I have two more big questions for you. Uh, We often criticize a song for individualism. Yeah. So we'll say, this song is too individualistic. Is this a legitimate gripe for us to have? Is too great an emphasis on community, conversely, not also a problem? Okay. So 
sorry, those were two questions. No, no, that's fine. The, those are, they come together, right? It's part of the same discussion because we have we have given some songs a little bit of grief for being overly individualistic, although in a specific way. So I think it matters the it the way in which a song is individualistic is important. Does the song pass through the mediator? Does the truth in the song? become relative to the individual or subjective to the individual. That's when it becomes a problem. In a song like In Christ Alone, which is about an individual, or Before the Throne of God Above, which I don't think we reviewed, but that's a good example of this too. These are songs which have an individual. There's really not a collective we, but the truth that we see is objective. And it's the individual is just sort of an entryway to make sense of the the objective truth but it's not it's not a mediator between it and whereas some other songs that we've looked at they're overly relativistic mm-hmm. they're overly subjective now i will admit that i have some reaction against individualism and mysticism and worship so this is a good question that I need to be asked because I'm probably more likely to see the errors in overly individualistic songs than perhaps errors that might occur on the other side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To take a good example of a Psalm that does not have any plurality in it whatsoever, maybe Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Right. All first-person pronouns, all first-person singular pronouns. But what's not troubling about that? I am not a mediator in the song. I am not a medium to be passed through. Um, That's why we would say it's okay to say, I see that you are good, and it would be potentially troublesome to say, you are good to me, or you seem good to me. Likewise, uh, taste and see that the Lord is good and not... The Lord tastes and looks good by my reckoning or our reckoning. And again, the context is important. It would be totally fine for you to tell a friend, the Lord is good to me. God is good to me. God has been faithful to me. But again, the context matters when we're talking about a worship service where a group of Christians are singing. We want to be more careful about that relativistic language because really we want to be talking about what God is objectively doing, because that's something that applies to all of us. And I also admit that my sensitivity for one is higher than the other. My sensitivity for individualism is higher than my sensitivity for the kind of communalistic kinds of worship. And listeners, if you can point us in the direction of some songs that you think might stray in this kind of error— I would be very curious to listen to them, to read their texts, and open my eyes to this blind spot. I think that I have. Yeah, here's what I'll, here's what I'll say, it, it just to kind of finish this off. Just because we don't have any examples of this ready, uh, you should, listener, you should still realize that we certainly see this as a possibility and likely something that has happened. We just are unaware of it, like we haven't encountered it. I wonder if this happens more often in kind of cultic cultic environments. Obviously, if you're in a cult, get out, you know, (laughs) 
you're probably not listening to this podcast, but, <laughs> but <laughs> what I mean is cults are renowned for idolizing the in-group, the community, uh, demonizing the out-group. Yes. And uh, that's obviously an area where uh, emphasis on the believer in the individual would be much more helpful. Yeah. Um, but they don't make big worship songs from what yes. I know. The thing is, right now, it seems like the worship that's being done in the broader evangelical church is at greater risk from individualism and mysticism than it is from a kind of collectivism. I may be wrong about that, but that's my read on on the situation. Ask us, ask us again in 30 years. Maybe yeah, who knows? All right, and I can tell that this is going to go epically long, so we should stop this episode now. We will stop the questions for now. We'll come back with the specific questions about specific songs next week. And until then, play it again, then rewind the tape, and then play it again and again and again until your mind is locked in. So we will stop the questions for now. We'll come back with the specific questions about specific songs next week. And until then, catch us next time on The Worship Review. Cheers. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.